Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Sounds of the World podcast. Uh, today we have a very special guest. I'm super excited to speak with him. Um, he is a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation in Oklahoma and is dedicated to the development of the American Indian classical composition. Uh, he was re re recently reviewed by the Washington Post as a rare as an American Indian composer of classical music and uh, rare still is his ability to effectively infuse classical music with American Indian nationalism. Uh, his recent commissions include his bassoon concerto, Ghost of the White Deer, for the Dallas Symphony, which is amazing. Um, his Chickasaw Oratorio, uh, Misha Sapokni, The Old Ground, uh, for Canterbury Voices and the Oklahoma City Philharmonic, and Standing Bear, a Ponca Indian Cantata for Hildegard Center for the Arts. Um, he has also had his music heard on the HBO series Westworld, which is really cool. Um, he's had numerous commissions from all over, from National Symphony, San Francisco Symphony, Buffalo Philharmonic, Winnipeg Symphony, many more. Um, he's held composer in residence for Music Alive, uh, the National Residency Program, the League of American Orchestras, and New Music USA, among many more. Um, he is a three-time commission recipient of the American Composers Forum, the Chamber of Music, America's Classical Commissioning Program recipient, the Cleveland Institute of Music Alumni Achievement Award recipient, uh, and an Emmy Award winner for his work on the Oklahoma Educational Television Authority uh, documentary, The Science of Composing. Uh, today, we want to talk to him, find out about him. I know that was quite the list, uh, but we want to uh, find out his history, his life, uh, how he got into music, uh, what inspired Ghosts of White Deer, 
and um, mm. talk about his pieces. So please welcome to the podcast, Jared Tate. Woohoo! Woohoo! Wow, man, that was a mouthful, dude. <laughs> <laughs> You need oh. to take a breather, I think, after that. <laughs> hey, I'm really a- grateful. That that that's a, that was a very, very nice introduction. I'm really grateful to you for that. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I've been listening to your music now for quite a while, and I think it's amazing. Uh, I love the infusion that you do, and it's it's mind-boggling to me as a, uh, you know, Western classical European trained student, uh, and having lived close to, as I told you earlier, uh, the Shoshone Bannock tribes in Idaho uh, and infusing that kind of traditional history with, let alone the European centric music. So um, to find your music was really cool and so invigorating. Uh, Thanks. I I appreciate that. If it's okay, I'd like to take the time to uh, uh, introduce myself in my language. Um, Yes, please. uh, Chukma, Chinchukma Tahatak. Uh, Hello, everyone. My name is Jared Impachachaha Tate. Um, I'm a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation here in Oklahoma, and I'm a professional classical composer. And I, I live in Oklahoma City. So, Very cool. But, you know, and I'll, I, I'll just go ahead and, and just take the lead. I mean, a little bit about my background. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge because, you know, honestly, every single human on this planet has has their background. <laughs> right, right, right. We have our origin stories. And, and I, I think that's always fascinating. I love asking people, where are you from? Where are your parents from? What's your background? You know, what's your lineage? I think it's just fascinating. Um, everybody. And I just, I learned so much when I, when I ask people just about their life stories. So anyway, I'll just go ahead and do that because I know that's kind of what people want to know. But um, so my, my father, Charles, um, is, uh, was born, I, I was born in Oklahoma, um, in Norman, Oklahoma. My dad was born in Ardmore, Oklahoma and, and on the Chickasaw Reservation. And um, he, dad was a, is a, a, a professional uh, judge, special district judge, tribal judge, legislator of our tribe and um he went he graduated OU law so dad is a professional attorney and so um I grew up with a very um great and robust background in um American Indian politics and constitution issues these kinds of things might we every tribe has their own constitution so every uh, tribal member lives under two constitutions where we have dual citizenship actually and my father is the author of the the most recent one that was ratified in 1987 and so um i'm very proud of my my history on on my dad's side my my grandmother was born in 1910 and she she went to the shalako indian school um up in northern oklahoma and um so uh but also my dad um is a classically trained pianist and baritone oh, so cool. my chickasaw father played repertoire as i was growing up as a kid and that was very normal to me to watch my dad playing the piano and singing and and in fact there's an image it's a very romantic image that i have and he'd probably blush a little bit but he when he was uh, younger you know dad played the accordion and so he would he gigged accordion and opera so it's like lady in the tramp type thing <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> and so here's you got this indian kid singing the italian opera with an accordion i just love that imagery it's 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 totally a movie imagery thing you know <laughs> so definitely it's so cool though so that's that's dad and then mom uh my mom patricia um was born in nebraska and mom is manx irish and uh, she was a professional choreographer and dancer so my parents met in the theater 
And so I come from uh, like what they were in musical theater, a whole bunch together. So I know all the, you know, the classics from the forties and fifties, that was something that was in my house that I would roll my eyes at. Um, But also with my mother, um, I, I had a really unusual education as a musician of, of American Indian, I'm sorry, American dance history. So a lot of my early heroes in the arts uh, were the early pioneers of American dance of Martha Graham, Ruth St. Dennis, um, Isadora Duncan, Ted Sean, um, uh, 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 Agnes DeMille. I'm sorry, I'm thinking Cecil B. DeMille. That's, that was her dad. He was a great director, but Agnes DeMille. Um, and so those types of folks uh, resonated very strongly with me. And so I grew up in uh, modern dance, classical. Mom also taught jazz and tap, and she also studied dance around the world. And so she was an expert belly dancer and flamenco dancer as well. And so wow. um, I I grew up with quite uh, quite a menu on my plate between my parents. And so um, I mean it's it's great because today my dad and I, you know, in, in our conversations, we just flow between Indian politics and opera very easily. That's <laughs> what we talk about mostly is Indian country and, and the classical world. That's what we, we talk about almost all the time. And just, we love it. We're, we geek out on that stuff all the time. And so I'm very fortunate about that. But I grew up in theater rehearsals. I was a total theater brat. And I mean, I built sets, struck them. I was in the pits. I was I you know, ran lights. I did makeup, costumes, sound, all that kind of stuff. And um, and I was in Johnny Skiki when I was a kid. I was in Pippin, the musical. Um, I was... Yeah, I was in St. Bleecker Street, Susanna, you know, and it just, I mean, I was just in it all the time. And it really informed my, uh, oh gosh, I've got, I'm, I'm very gregarious and I'm very, you know, kind of larger than life when I speak. It's, it's just, that's just my personality and it just fits. I'm a total theater guy. There's no doubt about it. And so I, I, as a composer, it resonates with me as a composer because that's how I like to express myself. One other thing that's really important is that um, you know, I grew up with uh, with the great ballets. Mom set Firebird, um, Rite of Spring, Petrushka on her students um, three in a row. I remember, I'll wow. never forget, she did that trilogy. And then also Romeo and Juliet, great ballet score. And so um, I grew up listening to the finest orchestrations ever, ever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. and that was, that was very common for me just to hear it. And so um, by the time I began composing, I mean, I, I had been, I had been, trained by proxy i was just in it i so i was i actually very groomed for it and i can't even you know as i get older you know it's like when we get older we kind of we were able to take inventory of our lives and i look back and i'm like i can't believe this right. you know we're just what was handed to me so i'm i'm very grateful for that and so you know when it comes to uh composing around american indian stories and legends i mean to me theater and there it's just a beautiful marriage it's a beautiful match I feel very proud and very romantic about my Indian identity. And so it matches the classical training that I have. And so I feel very, very whole as a composer. Yeah. I I mean, that's one of the things I was always kind of worried about um, is like, is there a, a way to do it without seeming as if you might be kind of, I don't know, appropriating not you but like someone else who might be interested in writing with that kind of background like uh that's a that's a really good uh topic you know i i'll tell you i think um there's some to me to me it's a it has to do with personal integrity 
Mm-hmm. And what I mean, I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I mean about the, that, you know, that phrase, to thine own self be true. It's a very right. powerful, and beautiful, beautiful phrase because it's, um, it's, uh, it's cueing you to be authentic, really. And I think that there are different degrees of authenticity. And I think only you can answer that truly, right? Right. So, I mean, look, a hot topic of the time was when Puccini wrote Turandot. I mean, he took mm-hmm. this Chinese legend and he was banned from China because of that. It's my favorite opera in the way right. <laughs> he was completely expressing a Chinese legend that wasn't his. So, I mean, that that's I it brings up a lot of good conversation of like, well, why? Why did he do that and did he do well? You know, I mean, and, and, and my, my personal takeaway from that is that I, I feel he was very authentic. Um, and that's, that's the best I can do to describe that. And, and that's, that's kind of where I just let it lie. So, you know, I mean, look, when I, I myself have the same, um, uh, internal dialogue because just because I'm native doesn't mean I'm going to do it well. You know, I mean, so I, I, I give my, I do give myself permission to be passionate about what I'm pursuing in terms of native identity and culture in my music. But I have Tchaikovsky on my shoulder, you know, going, how you doing there, man? (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Jared. (laughs) You know, but hey, look, I remember an interview. uh, Okay. So this is another, another example to think about is that, you know, we have American Indian artists in every other genre as well. So, and in particular, American Indian painting is a genre that's now 150 years old and is world famous, and it is a solid recognized genre like Impressionism is. And so, but a lot of, and there's there's different ways in which um, um, Native folks have learned to be artists. But I remember a, a, a conversation that Jean Quictesie was having with, as an interview way back in the day. She's a Salish artist, and, you know, she went to school and she talked about studying all the the european masters of art learning all those great techniques and and learning that and then stepping out and going okay so now what do i have to say about myself mm. right so she had a beautiful healthy um uh respect and i mean those were her heroes you know and did i mean that that they're just great artists it's that right, simple right. Doesn't that, you know no matter where you're from and so uh and she just saw them as her mentors colleagues you know slash colleagues and and then went and but when she when she paints she has the same you know type of bar that she's kept for herself as an american indian painter and so she's not just taking herself for granted that's for sure right just because i'm salish you know well i mean she's like okay i it it actually kind of gives you a a dual responsibility it's like because i'm native i want to make sure that i'm really really good right right hoping that's what i'm that's my goal is to just doubly make sure that this is solid work and now history and the audience will determine that but the pressure i put on myself is there and I, and I mean it very, and I, I don't want, I don't want to do it any otherwise. I don't want it to be easy. Um, mm-hmm. I always want it to be a very, a very spiritual, um, you know, a, a journey and, and, um, discovery. I, I want that pressure on myself. I want that. I desire that because I know Beethoven put it on himself. So it's like, Hey, I want to be in that. I want to be in that, in that, um, game, you know, right, so, right. I'm just kind of going off on this. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. I, I like, I'm I, I mean, 
we're talking about going down the rabbit hole. I'm kind of going down the rabbit hole. But but the thing is, a lot of folks are like, wow, you know, native classical music. What does that mean? I'm, I'm and I encourage them to look at the other genres that American Indians have been involved in. So like right now in in independent film, which is exploding like nobody's business, there's a ton of native filmmakers that are just hitting the scene, and it's awesome. I mean, it is absolutely amazing, and they are all using materials that are not at all Aboriginal to our culture. You know, the cameras are not, they're not from here. Right, right. Glass in a lens is not from here. I mean, all, all of that stuff. And the whole process of making a film is not our old, it's not our old exact process of storytelling. Now, the parallels that we find, that's where the magic is. It's like, oh, we relate because we feel a kinship like this. And, and that's, how, that's how we abstract our own culture and modernize it with these new uh, materials with these new tools and we're still resonating as as native folks we're still doing that still there that's the core of it but we're using all these new materials and 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 we're just modernizing ourselves honestly but you know if yeah. you think about it also like you know to go two thousand years ago in the past you know where our traditional artists were shell carvers right right and, and pottery you know also textiles i mean fashion costumes those that that stuff was there all in spades fashion is is in every culture historically and so you think about it and it's like somebody if somebody changed the design of one of their outfits and they they changed the knot how they did this whatever pattern well the whole community talked about it or if you right. change like if you change the outer edge of the shell carving that you were doing somebody that created a different type of notch of some kind Boy, that made a whole community talk and go, mm -hmm. well, that, I think that's, oh, that's such a great idea. And then some, my, somebody else might be like, I don't know. That's not how we normally do it. You know, right. that's not, <laughs> and that's, that, that is in every culture that, that is growing in human history. And so I, I see it very similarly. The modern Indians, we were modern 2000 years ago, as are all, all folks from around the world. We were all modern then, we're modern now. So it's all modern as far as I'm concerned. You know, Mozart's Marriage of Figaro is an incredibly modern opera in my mind, in my heart. Right. You know, because I think about when he was, well, that wasn't made before he made it. And right. that was incredible. I mean, I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, you know, gosh, the overture alone is just totally levels the playing field. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, so, so, you know, that was happening everywhere around the world. And you look at all the dynasties of, of the middle of the, of the far East. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's just, I mean, mind blowing the artistic history oh, and yeah. all the phases and, and just the changes and, and evolutions. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. So that's how I feel when I'm being an artist. I feel I'm part of all of that tapestry all over the world. And I just love it. Yeah, I, I, that's a great way to think about it is how each person, even going back way 2000 more years, you know, each person did something slightly different and it, ooh, what is he doing? Or, you know, right. Yeah, absolutely. The same conversation, you know, just like parenting. It's like, you yeah. know, if you go back and <laughs> talk to our aunt, our own, if I went back and talked to my seventh great grandparents, about parenting, they'd be like, oh boy, well, what you're in for is this. It's yeah. like it would be discussion and they'd be like oh yeah i remember that you know my seven-year-old blow i mean it, it's the same thing and so i i find a lot of comfort and um uh, safety honestly in that human condition that's all over the place and it makes me just want to be even more just me and just just do what i do and i it also helps me just really enjoy other people's art as well mm -hmm. <laughs> so you spoke a little bit about your of course your parents influencing you in music um but did you start with say like violin or piano or guitar and 
oh. and then kind of grow <laughs> from there? Or how did you get into at least composing I, too? I, I jumped right into the volcano. Okay, so no, you're what fine. Happened, <laughs> no, I mean, I that's how I did it. You know, white. Okay, oh, okay. So uh, my so I told you my mother was you know set major ballets on her students, and so uh, mom taught at the University of Wyoming for thirty years, and she wanted to do a ballet. Um, excuse me, based on American Indian stories from the Northern Plains and Rockies. And if, in fact, um, uh, the Shoshone Bannocks was, it was one of the ones that, uh, the, tri the tribes that, or the areas that we, we focused on in this ballet. Oh, cool. But um, so she wanted to do a ballet and she looked right at me. She's like, well, you're my Indian classical kid. You can write the score. And <laughs> I just about fell over when she said that. And in fact, I got very defensive. I said, absolutely not. I'm not gonna, that's crazy. Mom, what are you thinking? And she's like, I'm thinking like any dancer thinks to choreograph a new work. I mean, it was really kind of funny. Now, just to give a little perspective. Okay, so we're talking, this was in 1989 is when she brought that up, okay? And back in the 80s, this is, you know, before the millennials who are all just master entrepreneurs and multiple streams of income type of people. Well, actually, millennials are much more like Beethoven because Beethoven didn't go to college and he, you know, he learned everything he did by, you know, by street knowledge. And also Beethoven was his own um, businessman. Mm -hmm. And also he was actually really nice. He's got a, this grumpy image, but he was actually a really, really nice guy. And he, I mean, he had to pay bills and he was actually quite, quite wealthy. And so he, but he ran his own business and he was always negotiating this and that. So that's, I mean, he, he was a pianist and a conductor and a composer and a violinist and an adoptive uncle, you know, I mean this, he was doing the whole nine yards. So th that was, but in the eighties, we were in a time in things where, where things were pretty institutionalized in that you were either going to be an orchestral musician or you were going to be a famous concert pianist or a studio, like you'd had your own piano studio or, you know, that, or you were going to be an accompanist, Exactly. Um, yeah. whatever it was. I mean, it, it was kind of like, you're going to be one of these things, but, and within the piano world alone, it was only going to, it was a few things, uh, never mind. Oh, I'm going to be a conductor and a pianist and a composer. And a, well, it just wasn't in, in the thinking at that time. And it wasn't in mine. And in fact, it, it, it even extended to where, you know, my Chickasaw identity, I didn't see had any relationship at all to my classical training. Zero. Mm. Well, that you know, we'll find how ironic that was by all the stuff <laughs> that I, I was listening to Stravinsky with all of his Russian folk melodies in <laughs> the Firebird. And I'm like all these, be and I was, I had bought, I was, one of my favorite albums was the Bartok six string quartets. Oh, yeah. I'm listening to Bartok and right. I'm like, Oh, they got nothing to do with each other. What, you know? And so it's, but here Bartok was the first ethnomusicologist of his own people and a composer. He, he transcribed his own folk music. And, I mean, and here I'm, you know, listening to all this stuff and I'm like, I didn't. So anyway, so mom, <laughs> mom really blew, blew open the gates for me. And I, I mean, I couldn't stop thinking it really hit. And I mean, it just, I, it just started, my mind just started spinning. And I would say all of that exposure and training that I had just came pouring out. And so I wrote in secret for a week and then I brought it back to her and I said, this is what I got. She's like, absolutely. So we did it. And so my first uh, composition was a commission from my mother. It was a ballet score. Wow. And, and it was, you know, about Indian country. And so then... Um, we had, you know, we toured it around, um, uh, we went to the Wind River Reservation and then we also went out to South Dakota. And, um, and so, and then we also had our storyteller, our guest storyteller was an Omaha actor named Rodney Grant. He was in Dances with Wolves 
And okay. this was the same year that Dances with Wolves came out. It was the same, same year. And so he was very, very famous. And we asked him to come to be the, do the narration. He did. And boy, that guy just blew in larger than life. And he was like, Jared, you got to do this. And he was like really excited, enthusiastic. He's like, you've got to do this. You've got to be our native symphonic composer. And I mean, I was just I was like, it was too much for me. <laughs> and I, because at the same time, you know, I mean, I grew up with this, this high bar of all these, you know, I mean, I was... Right of Spring, Jared right. Tate. Oh my goodness, how am I gonna? You know, I mean, so the and then also, if I'm gonna speak for Indian country, I can't. I mean, I mean, the I just I almost collapsed from from the perceived pressure. But well, yeah, I think also, I mean, even with not even being Indian, just like the idea of becoming a composer and having to put up <laughs> next to those guys, it's like yeah, mm, yeah. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's the same thing as being a rocket engineer. It's like, you know, if you're going to work for SpaceX, you better, you know, you know, know your Werner von Braun history well, and you better know all the, the, the engineering that went into the Atlas V rockets, I mean, better than anybody else. I and mean, that's some serious standards that were oh, yeah. created back then at, during, you know, during the Apollo missions. I mean, that's, oh my gosh, yeah. I can't <laughs> imagine walking into that world, you know, so, but it's great, but that's what's so beautiful is that it's because that's what we're capable of doing. That's human achievement. That's us at our very best. So I took it very seriously, gave it a lot of thought and I decided, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it with great intention and great passion. And I'm going to identify specifically as a Chickasaw classical composer. Mm. Very cool. And so then you went on and you got your master's at Cleveland Institute. Yeah. And, and when the, I when I did the ballet, I was in between in between jobs, in between schools. And so um, I graduated Northwestern and I, I was I'd stayed there as a staff accompanist for the year. Um, and that was I was I, that wasn't so popular then, but I needed the year off. I really needed to. Right. So and then during that time, I auditioned to the Cleveland Institute of Music as a piano major again. And I was, had started up the ballet. And so I left Cleveland for a semester to go finish the ballet with mom and tour it. And I came back world totally changed and i added composition to my to my degree and that's when i started studying with don herb who was their composition teacher um at cim nice why it's really funny. i waltzed in yeah. you know a very uh let's see here a cocky you know whatever 23 mm. year old and i plopped this ballet score down i was like you know yeah I'd, you know i really like to add composition to my degree and he's like okay and so he kind of thumbs through the score very and i was all i was all offended like how can you just thumb through the yeah I was right just, right <laughs> so i mean i had this was what was going on inside i'm not sure if he, if he saw this attitude but that was the attitude that was happening inside and so he goes you know he said jared i don't encourage double majors because the amount of time it takes and he said I, I get what you're wanting to do and i said well i said i'll tell you what this can go one of two ways i said either you can take me as a piano as a, as a composition student and we do this right or i compose anyway <laughs> Wow. I, know, I just like, I, I'll tell you, I, I wouldn't take it back because he and I, be, I mean, he became such a dear friend and mentor to me. We, we got along really well. We were both very gregarious people and laughed a lot. I mean, my lessons were just such a joy. It was, I mean, it was just such a blessing to study with Don Herb and, and we, we had a great time. We really did. And it was just so valuable for me to feel that. I, the thing is, it was actually a testimony to him. If you think about it, I felt that mm -hmm. comfortable around this mentor. He, he just right. brought that out of people. And I was just like, yeah. And so I just feel like his, his biggest job for me was really just letting, just cutting me loose and opening up the floodgates and his orchestrations 
are huge and dramatic and I mean just expressive and I was just like yeah and so it was just like <laughs> I just felt all kinds of like get up and go to be very expressive in, in all in all my compositions and and so yeah that it was just terrific I was very fortunate wow yeah just that kind of I be that young again and to be able to have those kind of balls just to be like it's gonna go one of two ways <laughs> yeah I know it's like I hear this kid is talking to and you know I didn't know how famous he was I had no idea I you know a lot of times I call myself Jared Gump because I just feel like <laughs> I just am like hanging around a circumstance that's like unbelievably historic and I'm like yeah so what's going on guys you know hey you know right. <laughs> I just feel like I've just you know I, I feel kind of almost dumb luck sometimes in my life and and I'm I'm grateful for that. I mean, you know, it's just it's it's I think it's really important for us to have a little humility and go, yeah, right. I have no idea. But um I wouldn't you know, I mean I needed to be who I was as a kid and just be have gumption, you know, yeah. and um and he and he wasn't the least bit put off. He's to, so he was so stable in who he was. He was like, All right, come on in, you know, let's let's give it a shot and you know, I'll just give you know, and he gave me his best teaching and we just had a blast. It was really great. So, yeah. Be, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't want to replicate any of my behavior, but I also don't necessarily want to change anything. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> wow. Oh goodness. Yep. So there we go. That's, you know, when my, when I have my, I have a seven-year-old son and he has, he just has all kinds of personality, and I'm just I'm I'm laughing all the time. He's like, Dad, I love making you laugh. I'm like, yeah, I'm also kind of laughing because I'm gonna see you. You're gonna, yeah, you're gonna fall over sometimes. I'm I mean I I mean it in a very endearing way, but he's I know I know he's about to make all kinds of great, good, important mistakes, and I'm very supportive. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I've got a nine-year-old son too, and it's just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, we're gonna see how this works out for you. <laughs> And you know, I tell him, I'm like, hey, listen, man, it's really important you make these mistakes. You got to do this. You got. And he's like, what? He's looking at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, I'm almost your. I'm old enough to be your granddad, so I can say stuff like this. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I can see where this will go. We're just gonna let it happen because you need. Yeah, to like, hey, go, man. I, I want. I want to see you do it, so I can be like, yeah, go. Okay, now come back. I'll tell you. Tell you what. You know, <laughs> I'll help you through it now. <laughs> Here's a tip. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> Go do it again, but this time, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, I I think that gives you a lot of background. I mean, you know, just about how this all kind of came to be, and yeah. you know, it's I will say this, I you know, because I mean, if there's any um, younger listeners, when you're in your twenties, you can't. It's obviously hard to see the forest from the trees because you don't have uh, that many decades of perspective when you're looking back. But I I do like to relay the story because I mean I struggled. I was very poor. Um, I was, it, my life was very uncertain, like most kids are. And I empathize with that very heavily. I can look back at it. I, I do want to laugh at it, but I mean, I've, I've taken my knocks. There's no doubt about it. And I, I do believe there's a lot of hope. I think that kids these days have a lot of opportunity and a lot of tools to be able to make things happen in, in good ways. And I am grateful that that whole generation of entrepreneur thinking has come out because I think it's really liberating to a lot of people. They don't feel like they have to be in a mold and they, they can really ad hoc their own life. They can piece it together. And I love that. And I encourage kids to think, who are you? What's your story? And how is that going to fit into the world narrative? And also, how are you going to monetize that? That's really, gosh, I don't know a person alive who's not an entrepreneur and trying to figure out how to pay bills. 
nobody knows the certainty of their own jobs or the next year. You know, I mean, you know, and we're learning that in spades right now is that no matter how secure you may be, in some way, there's going to be a ripple, man, and those can be really big ones. And so, so we're, we're all in the same, we're all together on that, on that struggle, you know, on that very common struggle about how to make ends meet, how to make life ends meet and everything like that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I do like to encourage the 20 somethings, Hey, you're gonna, you're going to be fine. Stay focused, Mm -hmm. stay very authentic, stay true to yourself, you know, and, and, you know, just really focus on your, on your, on your self-confidence and just, just your focus, just stay focused one day at a time, breathe through it. You know, if it seems overwhelming, take a step back and breathe and just to be like, all right, one, th- you can solve one problem at a time. You know, I remember that and the, I loved the movie, the Martian, because it was all about that. It was a hero's journey of facing, you know, himself. He was up against exactly. himself 100%, just like Luke Skywalker was yep. up against himself. It's a t- typical hero story. And he came back and he's telling the kids, he's like, all right, you're, you're going to be there. And he's like, and you got to take it one problem at a time. You fix the first one, then you move to the next one. You do that one, you move to the next one. And he was talking about focus. Oh, yeah. And, 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 uh, and encouraging people, yes, it's overwhelming. And the solution is to take it one step at a time. Oh, yeah. And I'm yeah. always kind of surprised at how, uh, um, what is it? The ingenuity of the younger people. Um, yeah. Just, cool. Then I mean, uh, to be able to do what they're doing when if I was their age, I would just be like, oh my goodness, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, there, there's also I've, I've noticed that confidence is evolving over generations as well. The confidence, my own son's confidence, is blowing my mind. I'm like, wow, he and it's not he's not cocky. It's not like that he just is aware. He just like, Oh dad, I already know this. And, and you know, so the, so the sum of our human knowledge is becoming a sum of human knowledge. It's like, it's like it reflects right. each generation goes more than the next. And a lot of, you know, there's some things we don't, I mean, a lot of history is forgotten, this kind of thing, but there's something in, in just actual human, the path of humans. There's this collective thing that's going on, man. It's like, we're st- we are standing on each other's shoulders and I see that and I'm really energized by it. Cause I'm like, okay, I didn't have that confidence. Mm-hmm. I can now. Right. I can right. And, and just take the same cue. So I try to do that with my own son. I'm like, I like your energy. I'm going to take some of that. Yeah. I will. I will absolutely incorporate your energy <laughs> to <laughs> my self doubt. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, when we started this podcast, you know, I was like, well, maybe who should I get in? I'll start with some friends, you know, who I know are composers or performers. And then, you know, maybe yeah. we can work up a little bit higher, you know, and then mm-hmm. like, well, what about reaching out to some big people? You know, you never know. Just have, and I was like, I don't know. And they're like, just, you've got to just throw the the hook out, you know, whether yeah. the fish bites or not, it's not your call. You just be ready for when it happens. And so I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, also everybody's got a phone. And everybody can text and there's nothing wrong with calling somebody. Absolutely nothing. And again, it's like, I think it has to do with, I mean, if, if you're respectful and authentic and you're genuine with people, well, I mean, I listen to anybody who's like, Hey, Jared, can I, can I talk to you about something? Yeah. What's up? Oh, well, well oh yeah. And I mean, we're just people at that right. point. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's like, we're just working something out. And so it's, I, I, I feel the same way. And I encourage people to see, you know, be respectful and genuine. And I think that's really great. You talk to anybody because yeah. we're, we're all, again, we're all got the same, you know, 
happinesses and fears and, you know, and we're all, we're all feeling all that stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, just because I may appear to be successful, you know, professionally doesn't mean that I don't struggle and go, Oh gosh, okay. How am I going to do this? I, you know, I'm, I get confused very, you know, and I don't always do the right thing or say the right thing. Then I have to look back and go, Oh boy, okay. I got a lesson learned from there. You know, I mean, we're, we're all learning. Absolutely. We're all in the same, you know, in the same game. We really are. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, well, one thing I did want to ask you is uh, a little more like technical about your music as a composer to a composer. Um, yes, so, sir. so um, you know, I grew up listening to like you know Aaron Copland and William Schumann and these greats of American music uh, history. You know, lots of open fifths and fourths and sevenths and uh, these very oh, open mm-hmm. spaces. But then how do you incorporate this with a uh, song from um, the American Indians where is, there's a lot of kind of slipping between pitches and, the, mm. and chromaticisms within the songs? Well, one thing I'll do is that before we get into like exactly what I'm doing, I'll dispel a little a bit, a bit of that mystery. Okay. Um, it's very, our, our music by and large is very pentatonic and very diatonic. There is some chromaticism, but that slipping that you're talking about is honestly just, um, uh, just, uh, it's just human singing. Okay. Um, you know, it's like if I start, like I'm a trained classical musician who listens to well-tempered, you know, tuning all the time. I don't necessarily, if I'm singing a cappella, I don't necessarily start in the same pitch center that I, right. or end <laughs> in the, you know, some yeah. people carry things tighter than others. It's that simple. And it doesn't matter what culture you're from. And and within cultures, people are known as being somewhere like really exceptional singers as a, you know, compared to others, right? Right. And some, some people have a, a, a timbre that people enjoy as, you know, compared to others. So that's a, that's kind of a human thing. I, I've been asked, you know, what about the microtonalism in American Indian music? I'm like, what? <laughs> so, you know, I, I'd say, I say that tongue in cheek. No, what you're hearing is you're hearing just normal people, not necessarily, you know, holding pitch all the time. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's just normal human sliding in 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 tonality when we're just singing freely. That happens all the time. And I mean, it's often often you know even as a group, it's like if you have a group singing together, you know they, they may end up you know because they're not they're not playing with a tuned instrument like they're not there's no right. there's no raga you know there's no drone and there's no actual like if it's more if you just got. Uh, percussion and your voice, well, you're gonna you're gonna waver. That's just like that's just gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I remember listening to like the powwows at Shoshone tribes, and yes. you know they have the drum and then the singers, yep. and you can still hear the little fluctuations between each singers, right? You know, mm-hmm. so well, some some of them have have better pitch than others. It's and then also there is a fluidity. I mean, so it's just like okay, like a really good comparison is jazz. To be quite honest with you, mm. and two elements of jazz that are really really critical to be able to master is your ability to bend pitch and bend the bend uh, time. Mm. So like it's a real it's a it's sometimes in in depending on the jazz piece. It's it's always the, like the challenge to see who can sit back in the beat the the hardest how much how much they can challenge the drummer and bass player, on, you know what I mean on pulling oh, back. Yeah. Oh it's yeah, great. you know well you know that's 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 they're what they're doing is they're messing with a, an existing tight time. They're flexing that purposely, mm-hmm. but the time is still time, right? So it's right. the same thing with pitches. So you've got stylistic uh, fluctuating. 
but you're still within a diatonic system, okay? That happens all over the place. That happens in all kinds of folk music. Um, and, you know, now, and it actually, in some classical music that happens, oh, it just depends on who it is. So anyway, but but you get what I'm saying about that. Oh, there's, there's, yeah. that there's that natural thing that happens, and sometimes it's very deliberate about how people will sit back in the beat. And I tell you, the, good power singers do that. They do the same thing. They'll sit back because a lot of Northern Plains uh, uh, power style singing has like these larger triplet feels and they're true triplets. They're not like three sixteen, three sixteen, two. They're not rock triplets, you know. Right, right. That, 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 that. It's, it's, that's not like that. They're, they're, and and so their ability to float and create this, this. Oh, it's just fabulous. Some of some of the singers that do that are just masterful at how they mess with that, right? Mm-hmm, within their mm-hmm. own, within their own songs. I, oh, it's amazing. And you know, I don't know how historic that is. I'm not. I don't know if that dates back or if that's more of a modern phenomenon in Northern Plains singing. I'm not sure that's somebody, somebody else would have to tell you that it could be a little more, I don't know who knows, because culture is always changing a little bit, you know, over time, just like outfits. I mean, it's like all of our regalia has evolved like crazy, yeah. you know, all the materials, even though it's the same complete base, boy, have we expanded our repertoire on that. It's fabulous. It's absolutely wonderful. So the same thing will happen to that music. And of course, as, I mean, look, you know, natives are plugged into the internet like anybody else. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like when I, so a really great, wonderful teaching lesson I learned is when I was teaching uh, for the first time native kids on the Navajo and Hopi reservations. And it was in a time in with like dark metal was like really, and goth was like super huge with teenagers. And it's, well, it's like, well, of course it was on the res because everybody, everybody was playing dark guitar and stuff like that. It was all dark, you know, stuff. It was great. And their music that they play, they were, they were playing music. They were writing music for string quartet. And my condition as a, as a teacher was I had no condition. I had no stylistic restrictions. I was like, no, my job is to, is to be your living encyclopedia and to coach you and to help you make, uh, like make, uh, be the best musician you can be in what you're writing. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. They Every, every last bit of it, but I was there to be an enthusiastic, like, oh, well, yeah, and just making sure they're doing their best job. Well, their influences in dark metal was just obvious. It was incredible how that was coming out. And so, I mean, you know, so natives are very modern folks as well, very plugged into the world. They all know, you know, the current controversy about the, the royal family. Everybody knows that. <laughs> yeah. you, go block, you, go to, you go to the Bruins Hopi High School, and they're all going to know this. You know, it's it's no different. You you go to what's considered very remote reservations. They all know this because everybody's plugged in. So th- so those influences are also there. So it's like when you when you got and and they slip in in little really subtle ways. It's really incredible how we affect each other, how we resonate to each other around the world like that. So I, I, I of course you can tell I really love talking about that. I find it really exciting how that happens and very interesting how we how we um, adapt each other's vibe <laughs> yeah no like so one of my big topics in my dissertation was about hip-hop and rap music uh-huh. and uh i actually found like the subgenre of uh native hip-hop and rap music mm-hmm. and it was just i was like it was amazing to hear you know like kids from the res and things like that where they're talking about having long hair and they're talking about you know being proud to be the red or whatever, you know, and mm-hmm. it was just like, I didn't think I was, you know, like, Oh, this is something that you only hear on the inner city and never in the rural areas. Cause I heard it in rural Idaho, you know? So, <laughs> right. 
Right. But mm -hmm. it's cool to see how, you know, people are just taking things and then they make it so personal. It's, it's fascinating. Well, that, that's the beauty of it is that, is that is what happens when somebody takes it and personalizes it and then re and then reconstitutes it out to the world mm -hmm. that that's beautiful. Oh, how, how that's, what's human. That's human right there. Right. Is, is that we, we observe our surroundings. We, it's like input. And then we, and then it, it, um, it metabolizes inside of us. And then we have an expression that goes back out. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, maybe I love we, it. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's amazing. It's inspiring. I think too. Uh, I yep. think it pushes also me as a composer to look more as like, Oh, what can I really draw from myself? And yeah my own history. So, mm -hmm. um, Hey, look, you know, as, as a composer and as an artist, there is something that's just called the cool factor. Sometimes something is just cool right. and there's going to be all kinds of reasons for it that you may not necessarily be able to dissect or, or to articulate at the time, but for some reason it just feels cool. And I think that's a really good thing to follow. Yeah. It's very cool. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> So, so maybe we could talk about your bassoon concerto. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Okay. So um, maybe you could just give us like a little bit of background on it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sure. I, I mean, I love how you. We'll get to it, but like how you write for the bassoon with the orchestra, but because um, it doesn't seem like it's a small orchestra, <laughs> you know, like we would typically. No, it, was, hear. It, was a full, it was a full orchestra, triple wins, all that stuff. Yeah. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I I will be happy to be an absolute nerd and tell you yes. the inner details of the bassoon concerto. So, okay. So just kind of getting back to, I, I always find a storyline to follow as an inspiration. I just, just feels right. I love it. It's just the way it is. And so um, there is a story um, called ghost of the white deer. And it's very short. The story is um, just that there was this kid, um, who was in love with a Minko's daughter. Minko's our tribal leader. It's our chief. And um, uh, Minko didn't like this kid, didn't approve. And so uh, the kid was like, I really want to marry your daughter. Well, they were in love. And, you know, and he was like, no, he's like, I'll tell you what, if you can go out and bring me back the buckskin of a white deer, you can have my, my daughter. She, she can be your wife. And so, you know, Minko's like setting them up for failure because albino deers are also very rare, just like the white buffalo, but very sacred in our, in our, in our legends. And so, you know, he knew, he knew he was sending them out on a possible, uh, possibly impossible circumstance. Mm -hmm. So he goes out and then, you know, after a while, the story is actually a very sad ending this, the, the because he never comes back, but the, but the, the, the cliffhanger part of it is that the girl never marries because every night when the fire is, is and this and the smoke is going, coming up from the fire, she sees the white deer running while she, uh, uh, she uh, well, okay, in the story, he does see the deer and he shoots it, but we don't know if he lives mm, okay. or charges him after it gets shot. Well, she sees the deer running with the arrow in its chest and she's waiting for the deer to fall because that means then that her man will return. So that's like that hopeful, you know, she's holding on to the end. So that's the story. Wow. And, um, and so I just thought it was very evocative and beautiful and just, just a story I had wanted to express in a while. And so when Ted asked me to write the bassoon concerto, it was resonating with me also because there was a very literal physiological thing. And that is the bassoon's timbre is relative to the deer call. It's the same timbre. It's the hmm. same range. 
Okay. Now, I will say this. The deer call isn't as refined and pretty. <laughs> anyway, so, I've, you know, so, but, but again, we're abstracting. We're, we're, that's, that's what fine art does. It's like you're refining ideas that may be a little rough. But the point is, is that I was just kind of feeling that, that the bassoon is this, this very organic calling instrument like the deer does and everything like that. So anyway, so that that's the story. And so I just literally followed the storyline. It is a fast, slow, fast type. There, it's kind of four movements. It's almost like the middle. There's one that's a little more rhapsodic, and you know, but but it's it's still got that. And I so I wanted that to where you know it ends. But it's also um, bookended by the same um, uh, what I call "Ghost of the White Deer" section. And there's mm-hmm. this main theme that the bassoon is playing, and so that's that's the the romantic grand sound. So it's it is bookended. So it's got this arc to it that I put with the story. Um, so anyway, but, uh, but also just to go ahead and nerd out on that, since I got a piano here. Well, yes. okay. So the, with the, I was thinking about the bassoon and the deer call and, and all this kind of stuff. Well, in our, in our traditional stomp dancing uh, for Southeast American Indians, um, uh, the, the leader will, will, will start a song and he goes, you, oh, hey, you, oh, hey. And so that's how he calls. But then, then there's a part in, in the call that happens. Oh, 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 oh. And it's kind of like. Um... Right. Mm-hmm. It's like fourths. Right. So I, that's my transcription of it. That's my bar. That's me being a bar talk with my <laughs> folk music. So that so that is all over the place. That's the deer call uh, that and it happens all over the bassoon concerto. And so mm-hmm. what that did is that allowed. And so here you're talking about the whole fourth, fifth, seventh thing. Well, there you go. You got yeah. fourth, seventh. We'll see the that you know G sharp and the F sharp. That so stacked fourths make a seventh, right? Right. So if you stack fifths, you get a ninth, and I will use that as well in all kinds of different things. So stacking fourths and fifths, if you keep going, you start to create this almost a bitonality that's really, really in, in kind of inherent in that. So that that was that. But so what I did is at the very beginning of the bassoon concerto, I took that. Um, so could you go like? You got that second. So the bassoon starts out with that. So instead of going to the seventh, right? And then at, over time, the horns come in, booty, booty, and they sing the seventh. And it's just all, so it's a lot of seventh and fourths based on that call. And that's how, that's how I designed the whole piece. And then the opening melodies is more of an abstraction of, of some of our other hymns and melodies in our, in our songs that I just made a kind of a new one for myself. But that was, that was me being a little more free on that end. Cause sometimes I'll use a very little transcription of a tune and sometimes it'll be more loose and be more influenced by our music. So that's, that's kind of the breakdown of the theory of that. That's, that was just all over the place was that whole fourth and seventh thing. And the bassoon man, I'll tell you, that's it's just such a phenomenal instrument. And I, I when uh, when I wrote it, I told Ted, I said, well, listen, man, I wrote this very much like you're a clarinetist, mm. because I wanted the bassoon to be very florid, like okay. a clarinet, not like a flute quite, but more like clarinet. But that I knew that, and I and look, man, every decade the technique of players just keeps climbing. Oh it's yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> 
every section of the orchestra just gets better and better and better over time. It's just phenomenal. And so I was like, it's time, it's time for a bassoon concert that really has him flying through this instrument. And he does. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ted was just unbelievable. So now a little bit of background about that. Ted um, is the principal bassoonist. uh, Ted Saluri is the principal bassoonist of the Dallas uh, symphony. And he and I met at the Cleveland Institute of music. He was doing his master's degree there and then we reunited when he was a part of an ensemble that premiered a piece of mine at the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival in 2009. And he was playing in the Santa Fe uh, Opera Symphony. Um, and those opera, the, the symphonic players uh, doubled by playing uh, in the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival when it was so they had, it was really, it's a very rich and robust gig for them um, out there. So he was, he was that bassoonist of that orchestra and he did a lot of the chamber music for the Chamber Music Festival. And so um, he played one of my works and said, I really like your bassoon writing. And I was like, hey, cool. Oh, that's awesome. It was just so exciting. And he was the principal of Milwaukee uh, Symphony at the time. And so um, we had started talking about a bassoon concerto then. Uh, It didn't come to fruition while he was at Milwaukee, but he won the chair in Dallas. Mm -hmm. Dallas has a program in which they fund projects for their principal players. They can... They can take a sabbatical and study abroad. They can uh, pre- uh, record a CD. They can write a book. Oh, wow. They can commission works, and often they do. They'll use that to commission works. And so he was able to utilize that to commission the work and to program it. And boy, two major things. Luck, man. You don't talk about Forrest Gump. First of all, <laughs> first of all, I got four performances at the premiere, which is just almost unheard of for a new piece for any composer. It's wow. just, it was phenomenal. And it was all over the Valentine's Day weekend, and they had a special Thursday performance. It happened to be, so it had a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday a run. And um, February 14th of 2020. Oh, my goodness. Right. Two weeks later. Shut nope. down. Yep. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, I mean, we got that guy, that premiere. In. Wow. <laughs> no idea. And that was, the the the, the uh, COVID had just become we just become aware just right. then. And then I was lucky. I went to San Francisco after that for a week and then that was all over. It was just all, I mean, I was just really, really fortunate. So yeah, that was a real big stroke of luck. So and we have a nice, obviously a nice recording of that, which is great. But Ted, Ted was just fabulous. He was just absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Uh, I was just mind, but like I've recently kind of discovered a love for not just writing for voice, but for bassoon and just, the agility of the instrument itself, you know, um, having grown up, you know, I was kind of assumed it was, you know, you, you're younger and you think of it as kind of like the grandpa instrument, you know, or Peter and the wolf or something, you know? Um, but the skill and the technical work it can do Mm -hmm. flying up and down those keys. (laughs) I was just like, Holy cow. (laughs) It's amazing. You know, and that's, that's the thing I think is really, really fun also about being humans is that, you know, there's so there, we got eight billion people on the planet, which means every specialty has thousands of people involved in that one specialty. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, I mean, look, there's a whole specialty for dental polymers, and you go to a conference of thousands of people studying different polymer de- tech, uh, developments for dental materials. I mean, it's there. It's right. there. It doesn't matter what it is, and we can we all have this beautiful a time in which we can completely be nerds in our own field. It's great. And, and so I encourage it's a, you need to be a nerd in what you do. It's a, because it's a passion. Well, I mean, look, I, I listened to a podcast that Ted was on um, that would, that was a, 
about double reeds about bassoon and oboe and they were talking about making reeds on this thing and it's like you know that's <laughs> there you go yeah there, yep. there's the oboe bassoon con- you know conversation of the millennium is making your reeds how tell me about how you make your reeds and yeah. then, <laughs> how do you shave the sugar cane how do you, you know? <laughs> oh it's, and, and ted just gave a beautifully enlightening because this is their this is their life yeah i mean this is critical that their reads are all and he gave away some really really great conversation about read making that people just ate you know everybody's like i want to hear what he does about his reads how does he do his reads it's like it's really cool to do that (laughs) so so as as a result it gets better everything gets better and better and better over time and it's really wonderful because there are people who are very committed and very passionate about that one niche in life and we all benefit from it it's it's incredible you know, so yeah. you have a whole, you have a whole orchestra and a whole, you know, a whole, like uh, 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 I was going to say, a whole market of musicians that benefit because somebody's nerding out. Look, it's the same thing as you know with music notation software. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah. <laughs> you got people on the Dorico, the Finale, the Sibelius. Oh yeah, oh, man, yeah. and all the conversations that go. I mean, I listen to uh, Music Notes, which is a podcast about music notation software. I listen to it religiously. Yeah, because I'm a composer <laughs> who makes his scores in software. And right. So I am completely all about all the little details and the nerdy things. I got to know it. It's just got to happen, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on the uh, did I see a post recently where uh you were deciding between Dorico and Finale or oh, did I post that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I, yes. I have uh, made some switches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I've been doing this, you know, since 1991. And so, you know, it's like, uh, so this is something I think about quite often. And so I, you know, I did change, I changed my workflow. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Well, the technology changes. You don't have the ribbons on the paper anymore. You know, the green and black screens. So, yeah. (laughs) You're old enough to remember that? Are you sure? What? Yeah, yeah. I'm 37. The the, the original Tron. That's the only reason you know (laughs) what an old computer screen looks like. (laughs) I keep the room dark. You can't see the grays in there. But but i still remember like the first uh program i had was like on some computer and it was like uh, a a blue screen with green staff and green notes and i was really into greek right then so i was trying to like match greek and then print it off so i could play it on the piano because the midi sound was horrible really yeah Whoa, what a I don't know why, but <laughs> shocker. <laughs> but I remember having to get like the printer paper lined up right with the turns, yep. the spindles, and you start printing. And it makes a horrible sound as it goes across. Yeah, they're, those are dot matrix printers. Oh yeah, and my mom was always like, "It's three in the morning. Please stop." <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Hating yeah. ourselves. Here we go. That's okay. <laughs> You know, I'll tell, I'll tell. I'm actually, I'm really, really glad that I know all that. I mean, it's like I joke with people. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I was, I come from a time in which you would be angry at somebody for having zeros in their phone number. Why? Because when you have a when you have a rotary phone, if you got zeros, ah, and when you had to dial a one eight hundred number, it took forever to just get through one eight hundred. 
Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, it just takes forever to, to rotate from zero. It's just like, you know, so if anybody had zeros in their number, you're like, ah, <laughs> you got a zero in your number. <laughs> oh, yeah. I still remember calling my mom for rides with 1-800-COLLECT. <laughs> and, and I'd call her and they'd be like, please say your name. And I'd be like, mom, I'm done. Please come pick me up. And then <laughs> I think you get a free call. Yeah. Oh, that is awesome. I never thought of that. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they started releasing cell phones and my mom was like we might want to look into that for you <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's terrific <laughs> oh my gosh yeah it's crazy there you go yeah. <laughs> got some old farts on the podcast <laughs> well i always felt like i was too old to be getting into the whole podcast thing but i, I see people <laughs> who are older than me and mm. You know, it's it's great. So it's hey, it's a lot podcast of fun. and you you know YouTube University and podcast University has really become my jam. I I just absolutely mm. love love the ability to uh, get so much great information and and really you know great discussion from people on all kinds of fronts all the time. It's like if I want a podcast on anything I'm doing technically, I'll find it. It's just yeah. you know, it's really really terrific. So there you go. Yeah. My wife's well, big into the the whole serial killers. And- you know, true crime stuff. So yep. she's all over those, you know, Rwandan and crime and things. So that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about ghosts of the white deer was you, you said you had such a, it's a huge orchestra, huge orchestration, mm-hmm. triple winds. So that's three players per instrument and on yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, on the woodwinds on top of the full strings and a full brass. Mm-hmm. Um, Repercussion, timpani, harp. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, yeah. I remember growing up as, you know, learning, um, what is it, Comp- composition, and they're always like, you have to be really careful with the bassoon, because because of its timbre, it could also get drowned out really quickly with the orchestra. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about balancing this huge 120 plus orchestra members with the bassoon? Very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> with, with great thought. Honestly, you know what? It's actually that simple. You just oh, gotta, okay. you just gotta think. You just gotta really think about it. Um, it's it's no different than working out any details in something that has details. You got to think about the details and how one detail affects the other. So I will say this: at the same time, there's risks that we take. Mm-hmm. There's some things that are very very safe. We know that's oh that's no problem. Sometimes right. it's like okay, I want this, but am, is that too much? Eh. I mean, so that again, that's the Tchaikovsky going. Hey, Jared, how's it going with that? <laughs> How are you doing with that orchestration, man? Yeah. Is that is that working for you today? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they said I could use any instrument, so I used the cannon. So, you know. Right. I know, right? <laughs> so so there, there's always that. And, and to be honest, okay, so like, for instance, in rehearsal, uh, the orchestra had to go ahead. And I, I love this. A, a really dear friend of mine, David Herondine, who is the director of opera and musical theater here at OCU, um, says, we got to ugly through it the first time. And so he, that's his way of saying, we got to read through it the first time finished, no matter what, no matter what happens, you got to get through it. But you got to ugly through it because you just got to get it out and then they go, Oh, okay. I see. It's always critical. And so you got to cringe. It's got to, you got to cringe. So that's the same thing. And that is the orchestra, the conductor, you know, basically had to go, right, let's run it, just run it down, see what we're working with. And then they're like, okay, okay. So then they could be like, okay, so now in this section, you all need to do, that's when everybody starts to do their artistic shaping. Because honestly, it's just a very large piece of chamber music when you right. when it really comes down to it. That everybody does still have to listen as well 
as if you're in chamber music into all the fine. And they, the, the whole orchestra knows that they're playing full orchestra with a bassoon. Mm-hmm. Everybody is aware of this. So not only is, has the composer handed them these very, very substantial orchestrations, they know they've got a job to balance. The conductor is saying, okay, less here, blah, blah, all this kind of stuff. It's always less percussion, less percussion, less brass, less brass, right. <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And so, but the thing is, I, I have actually, as a composer, gone up and said, all right, listen, can we just do this full tilt? Just forget, mm. forget all that. I need you to feel it. And they'll do it. And I'm like, okay, now, same feeling, 10% volume. And that's that's just, a you know, and, that, and so, and I, and I'm very clear with people. I'm like, you know, look, these dynamics are idealized. It has to do with that's the feeling. It's not going to be the actual volume. This goes to 11. It's going to feel at 11. doesn't right. necessarily sound at 11. I love that. That's also a very old joke. But that's, um, but so, so <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's like there's a lot of gauging that goes on. Now, as a composer, I am, I am leading the charge with that. And I have to know why I'm getting into that conversation with the orchestra members. And I'm hoping it is my dream that they go, I see what he's doing. I get it. Okay. I'm in, you know, that they'll invest and go, okay, I, okay. Yep. Okay. This color got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what we're going for that. I don't, I, I can't think of a piece that doesn't do that. That has to challenge everybody's musicianship on that front balance. Mm-hmm. I mean, gosh, you think about it, you get into chamber groups, that's their bread and butter is all those nuances of balance. And so regardless, and so the same issue, it's like you would think it's easier, but it's not. It just gets more focused and intense. So if you got Bartok string quartets, well, oh my gosh, the years and years they spend retweaking measure 37, even though it says mezzo piano, well, we should probably do this to get this. Everybody's constantly making adjustments. As a pianist, when I'm playing repertoire, I find that by and large, when I'm playing, when I start with a baseline of piano on everything, mm-hmm. fluid and piano, then I kick in the dynamics while they become more effective. So when I'm, mm-hmm. my sound is growing, I don't have to be at a triple forte. It's that feeling of, oh, it's, but if, I, if I'm looking for that, that really good bass tone, that's just a great tone out of the piano, then the dynamics will grow out of that. I do that as a pianist all the time, even though the idealized dynamics are on the page. I'm not necessarily going to play that triple forte Chopin. It's going to feel <laughs> that way, you know, but right. I'm not going to hurt my pinky doing it. I don't need to. He's looking for a gesture. It's a musical feeling that he's looking for. So, and, you know, I will t- also often tell pe- you know people, hey, look, you got a lot of dynamic range, but honestly, y'all just need to just play out a whole bunch. Just, I just want to hear it all. I just kind of want to hear it all, you know? And in fact, when I was recording with San Francisco just uh, just last month, I said that and I was like, you know what? I know it says really soft, but I, honestly, we don't have a large ensemble. This, this, the acoustics in here aren't very friendly. I need you all just to play out because I just need to hear it all. Because I actually, the counterpoint relationship is really quite important. You get the feel. It says piano, play it forte, please. You know, I mean, I will, you will do that just depending on the circumstance. So I'm saying all of that because that go, that thought is always present in an artist's mind and in a composer. That's, I believe that's what a composer should be wrestling with as well as to where we're going, okay, think Jared, think what's the best way to put, to put it down. You know what you want, you know, there might be an issue, you know, Think about it. Just think it through. What's important to you? Is this? Yeah. And and often I'm like, oh, yep, I just got to put it down. And then sometimes I'm like, no, that's going to sound horrible. That's mm. going to be 
a really bad mistake. It just and and it's a lot. That's the unromantic part. It's like if you want to see a composer in action, it's like watching paint dry. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, it's, you're just sitting there like this, you know, with your head in your hand, just just thinking. Okay, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, wait, wait, wait. And then the next day when you come back to you, you're like, what was I thinking? Oh yeah. <laughs> Oh, wait, wait. Okay. And then you have to get right back. You have to spend all this time getting back into your own sound and then going, oh, oh, right. Right. No, now wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You're like, what am I? It's, it's all that stuff. It's just, you know, so it's just, a, it's just very carefully with a lot of thought. Yeah. I, yeah. I love that. Just, you know, I, I'm having grown up, I always thought of like dynamics as like, okay, there's these individual levels we have to always get to and, yep. you know, smoothly transition between them all. Mm-hmm. And then later on in life, I was always like, well, maybe it's more just like an expressive emotive thing rather than I have to be forte here. Yep. I can emote that it's more open or brilliant or louder without being louder, you yes. know? Yep. So, oh, that that's beautiful. I love that conversation because, you know, it's really liberating, actually, because mm-hmm. then a player doesn't feel that they honestly, I, actually, it's really helpful when a player feels like they're physically straining too much. It's like, hey, hey, no, no, that you don't need to do that. We we got to take care of our mechanisms and not, you know, no injuries. Injury is bad, you know. Right, right. Don't, don't take it to that degree. It's the feeling. It's it's what's in your spirit. And boy, you could, all you have to do is scale your dynamics. You could completely make them this little, really micro level of dynamics and have very little change. But if you're feeling it, man, boy, and all, hey, a listener is going to be like, they're not going to have any idea that it's not loud. Right. Oh, that feels really intense, you know. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, and, on, and actually that's something I can say about my own music that I am always working with. And that is even when I'm piano, I'm just Jared. I've still wanted intense. Yeah. I want it to feel intensely piano, like really importantly piano. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so I, I do tend to exhaust musicians. Yeah. Because of that, even Mm -hmm. if it's not necessarily hard to play it's um i that's the kind of that's the musician i am in my music and so i, I you know i'd make him run marathons emotionally and i'm yeah. very proud of that i like that actually because i mean like you know who I, great all i other pieces do the same thing it's like if you ever i mean gosh you play any ballet with really great intent if you play the second half of the nutcracker with the finest artistry that you can ever bring you are exhausted oh yeah oh yeah the orchestrations and the styles in that, the, all the divertissement in that in that act are just brilliant and require incredible artistic focus to bring oh, it yeah. out just right. You know, I mean, oh, oh yeah. my gosh, it's just incredible. So, you know, playing music should be, it's just, it's exhausting, you know, if you're doing yeah. it. So. Having been in the percussion with, uh, you know, the Nutcracker Suite and having to play the, what is it, the Shalesta at the end. It's like we get to that point, even though I hadn't played for the last like five movements, I was still like exhausted. And I was like, oh, do I really have to do all these arpeggios? And <laughs> that's, a, that's one of the, that's one of the best keyboard parts ever. You know, that and Petrushka, those two keyboard oh, yeah. parts of the Nutcracker and Petrushka are just unbeatable, you know? Just, yeah. Well, I just I mean, out. I just said that those. <laughs> That keyboard part of the Nutcracker and Petrushka, unbe- I, th- that was the, one of the most nerdy things <laughs> that could be said. 
Oh, I love it. It's true, though. I mean, there you go. I just proved my point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just they look. were always the one I look forward to and feared the most. So, <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, uh, Mr. Tate, Jared Tate. Uh, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Uh, it's uh, your music is so amazing and. It's an honor to meet you and talk to you. So thank well, you so it, much. It's been an honor to be here. I really appreciate the time. And, and I'll say, Chukmashki uh, Yakoke. Thank you so much. Sounds of the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. There are links to everything in the episode description and also on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sounds of the World. To show support for Sounds of the World podcast, please join our Patreon where you can have access to our after-party discussions with guests, discounted merchandise, and even more. If you have any questions, answers, or episode suggestions, please email us at soundsoftheworldpodcast at gmail.com. Well, Bill, I think I'm going to go have a beer now. Hey, there you go.